0: Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our first reading for this weekend is taken from the magnificent 62nd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet is speaking of the return of Israel from its desperate exile in Babylon, after years of suffering and degradation, the people are coming home, finally, to Jerusalem. And here's what Isaiah says. Nations shall behold your vindication, and all kings your glory. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord. No more shall people call you forsaken, or your land desolate. See what he means here. The shame of Israel will be removed. How shameful that was for them. They were the chosen people, the special race, and they were conquered and exiled. And all the world will see the beauty of God's people. Then we find these extraordinary lines. Listen. Indeed, the Lord will delight in you and make your land his spouse. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. Now, friends, I think in many ways, all the biblical spirituality is contained in those striking words. The one who made the universe, the great builder, the architect of the cosmos, will do what? He will marry his people. He will share his life, the richness of his being with them. He will allow them to participate in his own life. He will make your land his spouse. He will marry this nation. Now I say it's a summation of biblical spirituality because here is the uniquely biblical view of God. This is no distant deist God winding up the universe and letting it go. This is no blind force or cosmic energy. I just saw the movie Avatar last weekend, which is visually a very striking movie, but there's a strong theology in it, too. Don't be beguiled by it. It's the same theology you find, for example, in Star Wars. It must be the Hollywood-approved spirituality, and what it is is a kind of grand nature mysticism this energy that runs through and connects all things, well, that's fine. There might be such an energy. But if there is, it's a creature. And it is not the personal God of the Bible. That energy is finally indifferent to us. No, no, the God of the Bible is a person who speaks and acts And now declares his intention to marry his people, Israel. Extraordinary, isn't it? Extraordinary. Neither deism nor nature mysticism, but a richly personal biblical view of God. Okay. As I said to you a thousand times, Jesus is not one prophet among many. But rather, he's the very embodiment of the God of Israel. Jesus consistently speaks and acts in the very person of God. Therefore, we should not be surprised that motifs of marriage and wedding come up frequently in his ministry. We see it now in the Gospel of John. Here's our gospel for today, that unforgettable story of the wedding feast at Cana. Now, see, I realize at first blush, it can seem incongruous, perhaps even a little bit disappointing and anticlimactic, that Jesus performs the first of his great signs at a wedding feast. And for the purpose of increasing the amount of wine, you you might think, well, couldn't he have chosen a more dramatic or more uh, appropriate sort of setting really helping people with a a desperate uh, physical problem or whatever it is. What we have is Jesus helping people to celebrate their wedding by increasing the amount of wine. But against the Old Testament background that I've been sketching, this, in fact, seems altogether appropriate, that the miracle would take place at a wedding, and it would involve the increase in wine. Look, Jesus is in his very person, the marriage of divinity and humanity. In his very person, he's the wedding of heaven and earth. On the biblical reading, sin is a kind of divorce. Think of C.S. Lewis's book called The Great Divorce sin is a breakup of the marriage that God has wanted with his people from the beginning. How wonderful, therefore, how appropriate that when the Messiah, who is himself the wedding of heaven and earth, makes his first public manifestation, it is at a wedding. Now, what do we hear as the narrative unfolds? Jesus' mother is the first to speak in John's telling of this story. She says very simply, very directly, they have no more wine. Now, since we're dealing here with John's Gospel, we have to approach everything on a number of different levels. On the surface level, the basic narrative level, she is indeed commenting on a social disaster. Running out of wine at such a party would have been profoundly embarrassing. I've told you before, weddings in Jesus' time would go on for days at a time. You run out of wine. Well, people will just drift away. It would be a great social faux pas for this young couple. So Mary's asking Jesus to do something very practical to make things better. But if that's all there is to it, if we read the reading just at that level, we might be justified in seeing it as a bit of a letdown. I mean, is Jesus just being used here for practical purposes? No, we have to go deeper. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of the exuberance and intoxication of the divine life. When God is in us, we are lifted up, rendered joyful, transfigured, Our minds and our hearts are renewed. Think of the effect that good wine has on you, that intoxicating, uplifting effect. Well, that's the power of the divine spirit operating in you. Think of a great eschatological vision in the prophet Isaiah. The prophet imagines God's holy mountain where all the tribes go up. God's holy mountain which is a place of peace. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's also a place, remember, of a great banquet where juicy meats and pure choice wine are served. That's the Old Testament vision of the human community now filled up with the Spirit of God. It's a place of good wine, wine, Therefore, when Mary says they have no more wine, she's not just talking about a practical problem. She's speaking at the symbolic and spiritual level about a great lack at the heart of Israel and indeed at the heart of the whole human race. We've run out of the exuberance and joyfulness that comes from union with God. We've run out of the divine life. We're no longer intoxicated, uplifted, transfigured, transformed by God. The great divorce has resulted in no more wine. Now we can see, as we read the story more symbolically, precisely why Jesus calls Mary woman. Woman, how does this concern of yours involve me? And see, we can be easily misled into thinking he's being curt or disrespectful. No, no, he's addressing her with the title of Eve, the mother of all the living, the archetypal woman of the Old Testament. Now Mary is the archetypal woman of the new. She will be the spiritual mother of a renewed humanity, as Eve was the mother of the fallen humanity. She's representative here, I think, of all of suffering humanity, all of suffering Israel, complaining to God that the joy of life has run out and asking for grace. Her next line is her last line in the Bible, the last time we hear from Mary in the Bible. What a line it is. Do whatever he tells you. She's instructing the stewards to do whatever Jesus tells them. Here now, as we read the story more symbolically, she's the voice of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David, of Moses, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. All of those who over the centuries called Israel to fidelity. Do whatever God tells you, and you will find life, even if the command is harsh and painful. That's the hinge, isn't it? God sent the prophets one after another to tell Israel what to do. Why? Because he's bossing them around? No, no, because he wants to give them life. The trouble was, Israel did not do whatever God told them. So here's Mary now, summing up all these great figures and saying very simply, Do whatever he tells you. What are you going to find thereby? You're going to find the wine that you've been missing. Jesus then instructs the servants to fill to the brim six water jars used for ceremonial washing. Again, this seems like an incidental detail, but with John we always have to dig at deeper levels. The jars are evocative of the entire tradition of Jewish religion. Jewish religion and ritual, all the ways that Israelites tried to make themselves acceptable to God. Mind you, Jesus is not discounting this. How could he, since God himself is the author of the law and Jesus is divine, but rather he elevates it and transfigures it. He wants human beings to bring all of their powers and all of their achievements to the table. He wants them to bring all the power of religion and ritual to the table. But then, then, he changes it. He elevates it into the wine of the divine life. Look how much there is. 360 gallons of wine. Friends, when we're hooked up to the divine life, When we are married to God, life never runs out. There's the message. And this is why this is described as the first of Jesus' signs. It's meant not simply in a chronological sense, but a spiritual one as well. This great sign at Cana is the archetype of all of Jesus' acts and words and miracles. Join yourself to the divine grace and life, the good wine, will never run out. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.